0: I'm Alyssa Harris Perry, and this is The Takeaway. Thanks for being with us. We're continuing our producer appreciation weeks as we head toward our final episode this Friday. And today is a conversation with our digital producer, Zachary Bynum. Now, Zach is part of what I like to think of as the dirty self contingent of the takeaway. Me, I'm down here in North Carolina, and Zach is based in Atlanta. Hey there, Zach B!
1: Hello to you and the entire Takeaway universe, Melissa.
0: Hmm, I'm not sure that we're a whole universe, but let's let's do it. <laughs> now, Zach, we're going to get to some of your on-air production in just a moment, but can you start by letting folks know about the digital side of your role?
1: Yeah, of course, Melissa. So every weekday, I send out our daily rundown to all of our partner stations across the country— publish our web and podcast, and make some lovely social media content based off of you and our incredible team's work, which has given us so many opportunities to keep the conversation going online.
0: And while you were doing all that work, you always had your eye on stories for broadcast, especially those that were centered in Atlanta.
1: Absolutely. And I'm really proud of the work we have done this year to amplify the ongoing story of community resistance to Cop City. Let's take a listen.
0: The proposed site for Cop City is in unincorporated DeKalb County, located in a lower-income, predominantly Black area, and not represented on Atlanta's City Council. A local firm conducted a survey of residents near the proposed site and found 98% opposed to the project. Activists have not been content to simply send an email or call a public comment line. Resistance to Cop City has been organized and enduring, and part of that resistance is focused on the land itself.
2: Developing now, fighting back, a battle over unused land is causing a rift between Atlanta police and activists, and neither side seems to be backing down, at least anytime soon. We're
3: coming to document what's happening in this public park. This public park is still accessible to the public. back Ma'am, up, back up, back Ma'am. Up. My name is Sean, and I'm a participant in the movement to defend the Atlanta forest. The risks are necessary because we want to have a future that we can live in. The ends justify themselves, really. You know, I personally have a child on the way. I want them to see this forest that is, you know, a part of our neighborhood and where some of the best days of my life have been.
1: Just a day after we first aired that segment, Cop City grabbed more national headlines when Manuel Taran, a.k.a. Tortuguita, was shot and killed by police during a raid on the South River Forest.
3: My child, Manuel Esteban Pais Teran, was killed here in Atlanta on the 18th of January, 2023.
0: You're listening here to Belkis Teran, the mother of Manuel Esteban Pais Teran, a young, indigenous Venezuelan activist who was known by friends and fellow activists as Tortuguita. In January, they were killed by police during a law enforcement raid of the peaceful encampment of forest defenders.
4: Manuel loved the
3: forest, gave them peace. They meditate there. The forest connect them with God.
1: And Melissa, let me put this in context. This is the first documented state killing of an environmental activist in the US. And today, the movement to stop Cop City continues.
0: And because you live there in Atlanta, right, you were really able to be on the ground for us to bring us this story.
1: That's right, Melissa. In March, I reported on the week of action against Cop City, and I got the chance to talk to many members of the communities who were there. Okay, so what brings you all out here today?
5: Really, number one, I want to oppose Cop City without risking my life. So I thought that this would be like a good way to do so. I just don't believe in the current policing system that we have. I think there's no saving it because the institution, in and of itself, no matter how much training we give the people, if we don't change the actual institution and like what it was built upon, it will never be like fixed. And I also like don't believe in deforestation, especially for something as like frivolous as this.
0: The festival was a symbolic reclamation of this land for peaceful public purpose, meant to be a stark contrast to the proposed cop city. And here's what two residents of Atlanta told the takeaway.
5: To be clear, there's plenty of indigenous people still living, right? And still on these lands. But that's what it's founded on, slavery. And that's, there's just no way around it. Like that, when we talk about land, race and power, this is a continuation of all of that, of that dark history and legacy of slavery, of colonialism, settler colonialism.
2: I'm 27, I'm from a Georgia. I'm an artist. Yeah, we feel like that's a form of slavery. They overused their power, and you know,
1: that's not what's going on. Now, what that concertgoer said there echoes a number of concerns we've explored here on the show, Melissa. The site where Cop City is planned to be built is on stolen Muskogee land, the site of the former Key Plantation, and it's at the old Atlanta prison farm, whose conditions were described as brutal and slave-like, and has for years been the site of a police training center.
5: I live in a neighborhood that was cut out of the forest, and I have been aware of the police shooting range for many years that currently exists in the forest and was really disturbed by it, especially under COVID lockdown. I began to realize that they were, the police were practicing at the range at all hours, and that the kids in my neighborhood who were home from school, schools were closed, were being constantly exposed to those gunshots. In my neighborhood, I can smell the waste treatment plant that's been polluting into Enchantment Creek for many, many years. And I knew about that, I didn't realize the like, detrimental harm that was having on the creek and on the South River and on the forest, and that it was posing health risks for me and my neighbors, because the river has really high levels of E. coli. Um, so just people have this kind of living memory in the neighborhoods of the violence of that facility, um, and are constantly exposed to ongoing environmental pollution, whether that's police violence pollution or like from the waste treatment plant or the lead runoff.
1: And Melissa, 42 people associated with protest organizing have been charged with domestic terrorism. The precise nature of the charges varies a lot across these folks. And some people do seem to have been involved with damaging property as part of their protest actions. Now, to be clear, domestic terrorism is a very serious charge that can carry either a life sentence or death. And that's why so many civil rights and free speech organizations have publicly condemned these charges as a massive overreach on the part of the state of Georgia. And we really wanted to understand the implications of these charges. So I reached out to Lauren Regan, executive director of the Civil Liberties Defense Center about it. She represents some of the protesters charged with domestic terrorism.
6: Back in 2019, the Georgia legislature passed this domestic terrorism law in the form that we are looking at today, and the uh, legislators at that time basically said that the reason that they needed to add this law to their arsenal of criminal statutes was because of Acts like the Boston Marathon bombing and the Charleston massacre of nine Black AME church members Mm -hmm. and the Orlando nightclub shooting. And by looking at those events, you know, those were massive human casualties and overwhelmingly they were racist and homophobic motivated crimes. And so, fast forward to about Two months ago, now um, there were a group of forest defenders in Atlanta, and this conglomeration of state and local law enforcement agencies raided the forest and arrested these land defenders, some of whom were literally laying in hammocks asleep when this raid occurred. The other thing that you know really struck me when we became involved in these cases is, you know, this was a Republican law uh, proposal that has not been used. This will be the first time that this statute is being used to prosecute people in the state of Georgia. And it is not prosecuting racists or homophobic people who are killing human beings, but instead is prosecuting left leaning activists who are defending public land from what is basically a corporate takeover.
0: Now, Zach, the Stop Cop City movement, it's also deeply concerned about the environmental justice implications of this development,
1: isn't it? Mm hmm. That's right the south river forest is one of the largest urban forests in the country and its tree canopy is a major buffer to the effects of climate change like the urban heat island effect and severe flooding i also talked to mariah parker a former state elected official and current organizer for rays of the south and here's what she told me melissa
3: that is really what brings me here seeing cop city as such a um a critical juncture for the movement for um Criminal justice reform, prison and police abolition, and just like investing in true safety in our community. It all starts and stops for the state of Georgia, for Athens, for Atlanta, and for the broader South here with um, the destruction of this forest.
0: So Mariah Parker describes this movement as a critical juncture for criminal justice reform, police and prison abolition, and truly investing in safe communities. What do you think is the takeaway from all of that?
1: Well, Melissa, last year, you introduced us to the idea of becoming students of abolition. So I want to come back to the same question you asked Matt, a member of the Atlanta Community Press Collective.
0: I'm wondering what the message out of the continuing resistance to Cop City and then the pushback against that by city officials and by policing, what are the messages to um students of abolition, to um, the contemporary struggles against these kinds of developments and investments in policing. What what are people supposedly learning from this moment?
2: Yeah, so this, I, I would say, is a perfect example of an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. Um, every time that the state pushes back, protesters, you know, come out harder. And so the focus really for the last month and a half has been these so-called peaceful protests. Um, and of course, they have always been disrupted or broken up by police, uh, as we've seen you know, with the student protests that are happening at uh, college campuses and the occupations at Emory and Georgia Tech. While they say you know, they want peaceful protests, what they really want is for their power not to be challenged.
0: We're listening back to some of the segments Zach helped produce while here on the show. For this one, he headed out to Cali.
1: Yes, your boy hopped on that commercial jet in coach class and spent seven hours with my knees in my nose, all to find out what had gone down with young voters in the 2022 midterm elections by attending the fifth annual Teen Vogue Summit. We were doing it for the culture, y'all. Hey you all, I'm here out at West Hollywood at Goya Studios at the Teen Vogue Summit. I just walked up, I was greeted by Allison, this wonderful Condé Nast staffer who's helping me get through the day. Um, To my right here, there's some giant white ropes that you can walk through to the front booth where they're ticket you. And then on the other side, there's the huge iconic Teen Vogue sign. Oh my God, y'all, I need to get a picture.
4: A lot of mainstream media, you know, your regular cable news pundits, seem surprised by the results. We were not surprised at Teen Vogue.
0: This is Versha Sharma, Editor-in-Chief at Teen Vogue.
4: We're done and we're tired of the old narratives that like young people don't vote and young people don't care about the issues. It's just, it's untrue. Abortion. Being a huge issue motivating young people and women, especially to the polls, climate change legislation, the student debt relief, all of these issues that the Biden administration actually took action on in the last six months worked out for them.
0: It's something Teen Vogue's editor in chief noted, even as she excitedly announced her own pregnancy.
4: I am pregnant myself. What is most important to me about that message is making sure that people understand that this is my choice and that this is a choice that I believe everybody deserves. And I think the fact that in all five states that had abortion access on the ballot, all five states' voters voted to protect access and not restrict rights, it was a clean sweep. It speaks very highly to how much people value access and choice.
0: The theme of reproductive justice was echoed by Alok Bedmenin, non-binary writer and performing artist. Zach caught up with Alok during the summit.
7: I've been thinking about this in light of the recent midterm elections, where a lot of people are saying that abortion being on the ballot box made voters mobilize and show up. And I think another piece of it that's often missing is I think it's also LGBTQ rights being on the chopping block that people are slowly starting to wake up to the realize that bodily autonomy is under attack. A popular refrain that we've seen in the reproductive justice movement is the idea that cis men shouldn't be legislating on experiences that are not their own, and especially the experiences of women. But we have to do that due diligence and also reckon with the fact that these are not trans legislatures trans politicians that are passing these legislations regulating trans bodies and lives. We have to do the due diligence to actually be like cis people also can't determine the self-expression and the ways in which trans people own our own bodies. I think another commonality is that we recognize that what people do with their own body, the decisions that they make around their own health is up to them and that morality can't be the parameters, the criteria that we use to juristic how people relate to their own bodies. And right now we see both when it comes to criminalizing abortion and criminalizing trans healthcare, discourses of morality that translate into legislation. And that should not be a space that we allow in this country. I do believe that young people are really fed up with the manufacturing of false issues like trans uh, participation in sports Instead of addressing the real issues like climate apocalypse, like housing evictions, like economic inequality and instability, like college tuition, I think young people are jaded and disillusioned by a political system that continues to allocate billions, if not trillions of dollars, to perpetual war and militarism rather than actually investing in mental health infrastructure and housing infrastructure and building a more uh, environmentally conscious and sustainable world. And I think that that's reflected not just in voting patterns, but in culture. And I think this is where it's also important as an artist to say, we can, we can take the vibe, check, We can take the pulse of a country from an election, but that only captures part of it. Actually, look at the art that's being produced by a generation.
1: So Melissa, while I was there, I also got to interview model, actress, and founder of Girls Talk, Adwoa Aboa. She spoke with me about her career, her mental health journey, and how you can catch her this summer on Netflix's final season of Top Boy.
8: Hi, my name's Adwoa Aboa. I am the founder of Girls Talk, uh, model, I should probably start saying actor, but. <laughs> I'm not there yet, but trying to be an actor and, yeah, but most importantly, the the founder of Girls Talk. I just finished the last season of Top Boy, which was like, oh my God, talk of like full circles there. I'm obsessed with full circles at the moment. Like we were talking about when we finished, when we wrapped Top Boy, I was talking to one of the producers. And, you know, I think he's, he'd been doing it for so long and, you know, it's an end of, a ch- end of a chapter for him. And I was just like, let me just like spill my guts to this man. I'm sure he just wants to go home. It's the end of the day. But let me just tell him what this all means to me. And it's like, you know, when Top Boy first came out, I was living at home, just gotten out of treatment, trying to get my life back together, navigating sobriety. Um, and watching this TV show, this black British TV show, and just like enamored by the like sheer talent and beauty and the the representation seeing how much the industry has changed and being a part of that change it's like it feels like a win every day when I flip through the pages and I see a girl that looks like myself or I see someone who isn't the most stereotypical model or the most stereotypical kind of like idea of beauty. It all feels like a, a great move in the right direction and it's very sad. I think we're seeing, you know, was a, there's been a few articles recent about how it feels like we're going backwards it's in, in many ways, I think, in terms of inclusivity. That feels quite terrifying
0: so fun listening back to that West Coast journey. Now Zach, take us out of here.
1: You got it. Don't go anywhere y'all. We'll be back with more on The Takeaway right after the break.
6: The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, We use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
0: Welcome back. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and you're listening to The Takeaway, we're continuing our producer appreciation weeks. And today we're with our digital producer, Zachary Bynum. We're revisiting some of the work he's produced here on The Takeaway. Now, Zach, this story is centered not far from where I live in North Carolina.
1: That's right. Back on December 3rd, someone carried out a shooting attack against two power substations in Moore County, North Carolina. As a result, residents were without power for nearly five days. This all happened about three weeks after a gunman entered Club Q in Colorado Springs. He killed five people and injured more than 20 others. And it came during a time of protest against drag shows happening across the country and a slate of state legislative efforts to ban drag shows.
7: There have been over 120 attacks on drag events in 2022 alone in the United States. North Carolina and Texas have been top areas that have been targeted. And there's currently an unsolved string of attacks on the power grid in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, at least two of those attacks bear similarities to what happened in North Carolina on Saturday.
0: That's Lewis Raven-Wallace, an independent journalist based in North Carolina, speaking at the Moore County Call to Action National Press Conference last Thursday. The drag show's headliner, Naomi Dix, also spoke at the same press conference. She'd ended her set early that night out of concern for everyone's safety. And she joins me now. Naomi Dix is a drag artist in Durham, North Carolina. Naomi, welcome to the show.
9: Thank you for having me.
0: Naomi, tell me about what you were experiencing in the run-up to the performance.
9: About three weeks prior to the performance is when the marketing and promotion went out for the show itself. My face was front and center for the event. And as a result, we had a lot of pushback from local community within Moore County, specifically right wing conservatives who found that it was inappropriate that myself and my cast, and also Sunrise Theater, which was the venue that the event was being held in were coming to the area to entertain the community. And shortly after that promotion, a lot of threats specifically towards myself and Sunrise Theater started through social media, through DMs, specifically through people who follow Emily Grace Rainey death threats came in sexual attacks through dms came in towards me and there was a lot of pushback towards sunrise theater to ultimately cancel the event Uh, but mainly their first tactic was to have the event change its age restriction from being an all ages show and family oriented show to being 18 plus Um, And once that was successfully done, it then turned into them trying to get the show canceled altogether.
0: Zach, it's been like six months since that incident. Have there been any arrests?
1: So no, Melissa. As of early May, there have not been any arrests despite a reward offered by the FBI. But there are ongoing investigations and North Carolina lawmakers introduced a bill creating harsher penalties for anyone found guilty of damaging a power station. But I think for me, the most pressing lingering questions are about how this attack might be connected to rising drag phobia. And that's what your conversation with drag performer Naomi Dix and Glad CEO Sarah Kate Ellis was all about.
10: If you think about this, drag shows have been in existence <laughs> since, I mean, Shakespearean time. And drag shows represent not only fun and happiness and excitement, but they are political too, because they are, you know, we. it is when we take gender and turn it on its head. And I think that that is very frightening to folks in these extremist groups and these white supremacists. So They've really focused in on drag events. And these drag events also have always been a place to gather family, friends. And I think that now they're coming and they're saying, you know, they're using all of these grotesque terms of groomer. Meanwhile, and saying that we're threatening children. Meanwhile, they're showing up with these, you know, these machine guns, literally, (laughs) Um, and firebombing these events. So I think that it's been a political tactic that has been working for them in terms of galvanizing their small minority. This is a minority of people, but they're organized and they're deadly. Um, Just when In Florida, when Governor DeSantis was pushing forward his don't say LGBTQ bill, we saw a 406% jump online with slurs like groomer being used. So they're really trying to paint us into a corner of being terrible people. And they're using drag events as very visible moments to do that. You know, my job
9: as a drag artist is, as I always have said and will continuously keep saying, is to facilitate and create safe spaces. It does not matter the color of your skin, your age, your background, your political views. Um, as I always tell people all the time, you take your children to Disney Worlds, you take them to Universal Studio, you have people walking around in costumes, <laughs> you have people walking in wigs and makeup, um, you have your children take photos with these people, you have Your children take photos with people who are completely unrecognizable in costuming. However, you are terrified or scared or creating a narrative that you don't want your children to go to a drag event. We're doing the same exact thing that you would see a character at Disney World or at Universal do. The only difference is is that versus you know thousands upon millions of people at a Universal Studio lot or a Disney or at Disney World, you know you might have upwards of three hundred people or less at a drag event. We are here to not groom your children, but we are here to educate your children and to offer your children or just youth a space to be able to artistically find themselves or a space for them to see representation or to see that there is a community out there. So to deprive the youth of local or just community art in general makes no sense. And me as a drag artist, I like to call us drag artists and not just drag queens or kings, but artists because that is what we are. Again, we are providing and facilitating a space for anyone of any age to be able to see that representation and feel safe.
0: Now, Zach, tell us what we're going to hear next.
1: Okay, so this is a story about grocery stores, which impacts us all. But it's also about food justice, labor organizing, and the power people have when they work together. Since November, federal lawmakers have been considering whether to allow a proposed $24.6 billion merger between the supermarket giants Kroger and Albertsons. It's a move that could have big effects on many small communities. And we really wanted to understand how real people could be affected by this merger. So we talked with Carol McMillian, who is a grocery worker at King Super's Kroger. Carol is also a member of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, number seven. We also talked to Dan Waldvogel, director of Rocky Mountain Farmers Union.
2: When you look at where we're at in the value chain, um, there's there's a lot of different points to access the market when it comes to farms, ranches. Um, you know, for some folks, they're selling more directly to these grocers. You know, think fresh fruits and veggies. For other people, they might be selling more into commodity markets like the wheat farmer or the rancher, Um, but regardless where that happens, uh, a lot lot of times these businesses really don't have much control over the price that they get, um, especially when they're only selling to maybe one or two uh, buyers. And so as as time goes on, we see less and less of the food dollar, you know, currently Farmers and ranchers only receive about 14.3 cents of the food dollar. And that continues to uh, decrease. The other challenge is uh, farmers, ranchers, ag workers, they all shop at these grocery stores too. So as the price for consumers goes up, um, a lot of these folks are really getting hit, uh, you know, on both sides.
0: Right. Earning less and paying more for an item like food, which after all we all have to have. Carol, Um, Maybe you could also help make this concrete for us because I understand that you experienced the 2015 Albertson acquisition of Safeway. Can you tell us a little bit about your
3: experience? Um, Yes, I was a grocery worker there and um, they had people come in. They were like uh, temporary store managers. We called them terminators. What these people did was they came in to determine what stores would open and what what stores would stay open, and what stores which stores would close, it was quite a traumatic experience for the workers. I have to tell you, uh, a lot of people were terminated for nonsense reasons. Um, it was just a really uh horrendous experience. You know, um, that merger between Albertsons and Safeway. Closed a lot of stores, so I just feel like this merger would create a lot of food deserts, you know, in communities that really need stores that are accessible. And, um, you know, this merger it's just uh, I think it's uh, it's overreaching because the stores and the communities I mean, I live in Aurora, Colorado. I live, you know, a few blocks from the store that I work at. It's a very accessible, convenient location for me. I also shop there. I'm a consumer as well. Kroger CEO promises store closures won't happen, but the necessity for two stores across the street from each other, you know, it's going to be outdated. This is going to affect the communities. It's going to affect the workers. It's going to affect the small businesses, Surrounding those stores, a lot of those stores are anchors.
0: It's so interesting that language you used, Carol, of the terminators. Um, you know, not that that there was a sense that folks were coming in to to really help you to manage and and create and and serve the community, but rather simply to eliminate, right? But Dan, what is talk to me about why farmers are connected to grocery workers in this context, sort of what is this um, constellation of of groups that are organized against this merger?
2: It really brings uh, together a lot of folks. Um, you know, there's kind of a saying, you know, maybe, maybe it's a number of uh, uh, strange bedfellows, but I think as long as we can all share the sheets and work together to fight this, um, there's a lot that we can accomplish Uh, You know, so far there's been uh, a number of uh, ag groups, um, uh, farm worker groups, um, these labor unions, as well as, you know, some of the other watchdog groups that really fight for more competitive markets coming together on this. There's also been a great number of states attorneys general um, uh, looking into this as well, just because it is, you know, it's a big concern. You know, in Colorado, um, not even counting uh, Albertsons, Kroger is the third largest employer. Uh, And in many of our communities, um, you know, they may control 70% or maybe even up to 100% of the grocery market. Uh, So the changes that, you know, might come forward could be, you know, very, very dramatic in a lot of ways. And, you know, I know for Rocky Mountain Farmers Union as well, you know, we were founded you know, more than a century ago, you know, so family farmers could work together cooperatively to build a fair market. And even back then, you know, one of our major priorities was price parity. You know, the idea that uh, a farmer should be able to cover the cost of production and earn a modest income. And I think that, you know, we've learned a lot, especially through the pandemic, you know, when you're thinking of essential workers, you know i think the idea that if we can increase more income back to the farm gate and then through worker driven social responsibility models really work to ensure that you know all stakeholders within those ag businesses are being compensated fairly we have the opportunity to really build that solidarity and really create some uh, important changes you know across the value chain
0: Zach, I am so excited for this part of the show because we're about to highlight such an important contribution that you made for us back when you pitched our ongoing series, Black Queer Rising. Tell us about it.
1: Ugh, what can I say, Melissa? I love this project series. I may be biased, obviously, but it is hands down one of my favorites. We've interviewed some incredible people. And as a Black queer person, it was incredible to hear some of our stories told and centered on public radio. It was a chance to bring you the stories of Black LGBTQ folks who are pushing boundaries and blazing trails. And I wanted to go back to a conversation from last spring with Moore Kismet, who is a non-binary DJ changing the sound of EDM. At the age of 16, they became one of the youngest artists to ever play at Lollapalooza and Electric Daisy Carnival Fest. Moore was featured in Billboard's Twenty One Under Twenty One. Melissa. And side note, our profile of them was quoted in a 2022 Billboard magazine piece. Shabuya.
0: So, More, this conversation that we're having is part of our ongoing series, Black Queer Rising. When I say to you, Black Queer Rising, what does it mean to you?
11: It means that our stories and our experiences are finally reaching the forefront of attention to the point where if people think we're annoying, people think we're annoying, and that's their prerogative. Our stories have been embedded, embedded into the foundations of music since the dawn of time. And we've made that known plenty of times, but no one wants to believe us. Nobody wants to hear, nobody wants to listen, nobody wants to fully understand why we create the things we create, why we share the things we share in our music and in our art. It's because of the fact that this is us. If if you can come from your own experiences and tie that in, why can't we?
1: We've had such great voices as part of this series. Another conversation I loved was with you and George M. Johnson, author of All Boys Aren't Blue. They are one of Time Magazine's 2022 Most Influential People.
0: When I say to you, Black, queer, rising, what does it mean to you?
1: I think about,
9: you know, just the rise in visibility, the rise in representation, uh, the rise in the acknowledgement of our existence. And then I think of the uh, boiling water kind of boiling over. I think... There is a rise in our rage and a rise in our anger. And I think we've had enough. And so when I think about uh, Black Queer Rising, I think it is that rage against a society that has tried to suppress us for so long. And we have decided to not uh, just simmer anymore. I think we are boiling over and knocking over the lids and uh, doing it in a very bold and unapologetic way.
0: All right, folks, that's it for today's show. But before we go, I have to take a moment with Zach, because Zach's son, you and I have history. I mean, we first met when you were just 18 years old and you were a first year student at Wake Forest University. Go Deeks. It was 2016 and you were part of that initial cohort of the Wake the Vote program, which meant that along with two dozen other students, we were on the road together for a whole year. Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, D.C., Cleveland, Philly. Ah! And for me, that meant really getting a chance to know you because I was able to see you in so many settings beyond the classroom. Like, I'll never forget the summers you were a servant leader for the Anna Julia Cooper Freedom School and the way you motivated those young people and how so many of them saw themselves in you. So, when you came to work for The Takeaway as a digital producer, I was thrilled. But I'll also admit, Zach, I kinda figured I already knew your strengths and your skills. But I gotta say I was wrong. It's actually been a pleasure to be surprised by you. You've brought a lot of passion and dedication to this work and you have consistently urged us, conjoled us, sometimes even demanded that we recognize the life altering urgencies of the stories that you want us to tell. Now, I know that you've been more than a little frustrated about trying to drag my Generation X self, kicking and screaming into some level of digital relevance. But Zach, I also know that when we have tussled about amplification, it's always because you believe that the work of public radio should be relevant and available. For new generations of listeners and i got mad love and respect for that so zach i am gonna i can't even really say how much i'm gonna miss working with you on a daily basis but i will say when it comes to you because i was once your teacher i've always been prepared to say goodbye i've always known there was gonna i've always known someday you were gonna graduate because Zach, you are black, queer, rising. So keep rising.
1: I have no words, man. Okay. Um. Wow, wow. Melissa, I'm actually like trying really hard to um, come with a clear, concise um, response besides, I love you. I respect you. <laughs> I am constantly pushed to new boundaries and new levels of excellence under your guise um and for me i feel like it's just the this the not going off on a tangent but you're one of the only um you know political scientists who's alive today whose book i've actually read um and (laughs) for me it's like that you were a political science you know what i mean and Just for people who might be listening who don't know, like one of the big focuses of like maybe the second chapter of Sister Citizen is talking about the politics of recognition and how much that is central to our fight as people who have identities that live on the margins or we have or people who are fighting for people on the margins. We understand that a lot of this is a battle for recognition um, and a battle for equal representation in our society. And I think what I've seen you do as a leader, as a media professional, um, as a as a biting, biting and critical academic, you are the person who has set the way for people like me. Um, and so I want you to know that I, I'm walking in the way that you have built so many of us younger journalists slash political slash media professionals slash academics who are really trying to use this work to make the world a better place. Um, We have so much to thank you for, and we have so, so much to carry on because the legacy that you've built is one that is durable.
0: Listen, y'all, there's a lot of love on Team Takeaway. We've (laughs) still got the rest of the week, so be sure to get back here and hear more of our producer appreciation. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And this is The Takeaway.